This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 292, a conversation with Peter Sanderson. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans, this is episode 292, I'm your host Adam Chapman, and this is our episode where we have a conversation with noted uh, comic book historian Peter Sanderson. Uh, before we get into the episode, a little bit of housekeeping, uh, you, if you want to email us, you can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, eventually when we start putting up our threads on HC Realms again, you can uh, post there as well. So for today's episode, we uh, had a chance to sit down and have a conversation with Peter Sanderson, who is, as I mentioned, a noted comic book historian. Uh, you should like him on Facebook, he's very interesting. Um, in terms of everything he's kind of posting on his Facebook page, um, letting you know about you know birthdays and comic book and cartoon history, um, he's very interesting in terms of the things he's kind of posting there. He's got a, a wide variety of interests in terms of the comic book and cartoon mediums. So we had a bit of a conversation about this. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this was I believe the first time that uh, Peter had ever used Skype and. It worked fine on his end, but it looked like uh, when we actually checked the stream afterwards, uh, there were some spots where there's some lag in the audio. Uh, so I tried to piece it together as much as I could. So there are some issues near the end, back end of the podcast. Um, but uh, I think for the most part, it, can't, it comes through. Um, there just is some delays in some of the audio. So we've tried to piece it together as best we could, but I definitely thought it was an interesting conversation and something worth listening to, uh, even if it is a little bit more uh, difficult at times to hear exactly what he's saying or just because of the way the audio stream ended up coming through. But uh, for the most part, I think it was a, it's a really good episode, and uh, I'll turn it over to uh, myself and Peter. Peter, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. Glad to be here. So, thank you very much for agreeing to do the show. We know that you're uh, you're sweating through a heat wave right now. That's true. Uh, but uh, hopefully, uh, talking about comics is something you can do regardless of the weather. That's right. I have the fan on about a foot away from me, so I'm prepared. Okay, good. Um, so, I guess usually when I want to talk about with my uh, my guests is first to kind of start off with you know what was it that kind of first brought you into comics in terms as a fan. As a fan, well, I don't think I can remember my first comic book experience or turned me into a fan because it goes way, way so far back. I cannot remember a time when I was not reading comics. I used to live in Situate, Massachusetts, and my mom would take me down to one of those mom-and-pop stores that are now extinct. And they had a big rack of comics, and I would buy. Back then, it was mostly Dell comics, and the comic I liked the comics I liked the best were the were the Uncle Scrooge and Donald Ducks comics that were drawn and written by Carl Barks, although I had no idea what his name was. But I knew. But as far back as I can remember, I've been reading comics, and I loved Barks's work. So, as far as I'm concerned, I've always been a fan of comics. The first superhero comic that I read that was a real superhero comic not something like super goof or mighty mouse or you know funny animal com superhero was an issue of world's finest in the early 60s that featured the composite superman on on the cover this was an enemy of batman and superman who looked like he was batman on one side of his body and superman on the other side of his body and he was like the most powerful being on in the world and i this i was just and it's actually a story that has a it's an unusual story for DC in the early 60s because it actually turns the composite Superman into a sort of tragic figure. And 
Marvel's say, but not from DC. But anyway, it, it seized me right away, and I kept reading superhero comics after that. So, and I guess it was the late 60s that I started writing fan letters to, especially to Julie Schwartz's uh, letter columns. Julie Schwartz, one of the great editors in comics history, who edited in the 60s The Flash and Green Lantern and Justice League and the Batman books. And, and Mr. Schwartz would, uh, ended up publishing me on a regular basis in his letter pages. And I also started writing fan letters to Marvel and getting them published. And it was in the mid-70s that I moved to New York City to attend graduate school at Columbia University. And I got a call, from, I got uh, contacted by the Marvel fan mail editor, Bonnie Wilford, who wanted to meet me. And she wanted to introduce me to her boyfriend, who had just started writing the X-Men and who was... Uh, who very much liked my fan letters to the book. And that was Chris Claremont, and that is how I, that was my first connection to the world of comic book prose. And eventually I got invited by Mark Wolfman and Len Wein to help them research what turned into uh, Who's Who in the DC Universe. And Mark Grunewald, who became one of my best friends, came, uh, brought me into Marvel to start work on the original official handbook of the Marvel Universe, and then I became an assistant editor at Marvel, and that's how the career began. Wow. Now, what is it about, I mean, you've obviously become a very well-known comics historian. What is it about kind of the, the history of comics which makes you so interested? Um, what makes me interested in, in it is just the, um, I think initially, it, I just had this the uh, sheer appeal of the art form because like I said I, I was a, a, a big fan I was, I was loving comics when I was reading about wealthy ducks <laughs> you know with a money bin and uh, so there was something about the about cartoon art that kind of capturing personality within this sort of deceptively simple drawing and visual storytelling through the comics medium that immediately gripped my interest. Now, I pro now when I was a child, I wasn't thinking in those terms. But what, um, you know, and eventually I sort of fell away from the funny animal comics, but then superheroes seized my imagination. Superheroes are, and I think it is because it is a modern-day mythology in American pop culture that it, that it taps into these these grand story ideas that man has been fascinated with since ancient times. That used to be stories of the gods and, and heroes you know, like Hercules or Samson and now it's the superhero genre updates it for the 20th and now the 21st century and there's been such and you know every instead of, you know, when I was growing up at some point you're supposed to outgrow comics but I never did because, you know, if I got tired of the funny animal comics, I moved on to the Mark Weisinger edited Superman books and then to the, then to the Schwartz superhero comics and then to Marvel. And every time when I started feeling I was getting tired of those books, there'd be some sort of revolution that would, in the writing and the art, that would push the envelope further so that when I started getting tired of DCs, that's when Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams started doing Batman and Green Lantern. And if I, when I was losing interest a bit in Stan's last few years writing Marvel comics, you had this whole new generation being 
headed by Roy Thomas, who were, who were like me. They were fans of the comics, but they had gotten into the business, and they wanted to take the characters and the stories further, make, make them even more sophisticated. And it, the level of sophistication has just been growing over the decades, and to my interest. So that now we have now we have made think comics that are major works of literature, whether it's Art Spiegelman's Mouse or Neil Gaiman's Sandman or Alan Moore's Watchmen. And I should also should say that as I've grown older, my interest in various kinds of comics has expanded. So that you know, much as many people think of me as a superhero expert, if you unless you follow my Facebook page, so you know this, but it's like I have I have, for example, a vast interest in the history of America. Newspaper comic strips. I know a great deal about classic American animation. So I've I've just been exploring. Uh, spent my life exploring different forms of cartoon art and comics history. I want to go back for a second. Uh, when you first started writing letters to DC Comics, especially, what uh, what was it in you that kind of said, "Yes, I'm going to write a letter"? Because I mean, there's only. There's a lot of people who read comics, but not as many people who actually write letters. What was it that you were like, no, I've really got to comment on something? Well, I guess it was that I was, I was looking at the letter pages, and, I, and there were the, uh, the, the major regular letter, letter hacks, as they were called back then, like Guy H. Lowell III and Mike Friedrich. And I mean, Vartoff has since become a friend of mine. And, um, and I probably thought, well, I could do, I could do this too. And also, it was a, I think it was a way of feeling as if I was a participant in the in the process of, of making comics, and that I could, you know, I read the I read the story, and then I wanted to comment on to give something back to to show my appreciation to the editor and the writers and the artists. And also, it was a way of thinking through the st- writing these letters was thinking through the story. Why do these characters affect me so? What is it that made this story work? Because I was already interested in, you know, this is the start of my becoming a comics critic. Not just sitting back and reading the stories, but trying to figure out why they're good. What makes them work? What is the essence of a good comic story? What is the essence of a good story in the superhero genre? And uh, and Julie Schwartz and whoever it was who was picking out the the letter... Uh, the letters for the pages at Marvel, which, which probably not in many cases the writers of the book, like Chris, uh, recognize this in me. And, they, and, and in the case of uh, people of later, gener- you know, generations later than and Julie's, uh, people like Mark and people of my own generation, like Mark Grunewald, they recognize that I was back with them. I was thinking the way they did. And that's why I think they want to get to know me. And why they eventually brought me into the business. Had you ever thought about actually like writing comics, or were you purely kind of looking at it from a no, different this, level? This is a this is a question I get. I've been asked all my life, and people never really get it that writing is not the same talent as being a creative writer. It's not writing fiction is di- is a different sort of talent. I don't think you expect. I'd say. Uh, Okay, Roger Ebert did write a screenplay once, but it's like you don't expect movie critics to write movies themselves. You don't expect the theater critic in the New York Times to go out and write a play. And this is a different kind of talent. It's a being a critic and a historian is sort of an analytical talent. But whereas uh, you know, a comic book, a person who writes comics has a talent for fiction, has a talent 
talent for creating things out of his imagination. It's a different, I wish I had that sort of talent. I have written some comic book stories in the past, but they be very continuity-oriented stories where basically I'm solving a problem. I'm taking, like uh, I did the Saga of the Serpent Crown in the Marvel Annuals one year, which was sort of stitching together all the references to the Serpent Crown that had been in Marvel Comics over the decade, and then writing some new scenes to fill in the gaps. But no, I mean, I wish I could be Neil Gaiman or Chris Claremont, Frank Miller or someone like that, but I'm not. What I'm what I want to be is uh, like, um, oh, Frank, Frank Miller once said to me that uh, he wished that there was a James Agee of comics. James Agee being a pioneering film critic back in the 1940s. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's sort of what I want to be. You know, I, I, want, I want to be able to write that kind of criticism. And so far, it's taken the form. It started out as letters to the letter pages and fanzine articles. And then there have been the various books that I've written or contributed to over the years. But my goal for the remainder of my life is to try to work on books of serious criticism of comics over the years. When you first started working with DC Comics and doing like all the all the research that you did that ended up going into the who's who, I mean, what was that like? I mean, you, you go from being someone who's writing for fanzines and thinking about all this stuff and suddenly you're tasked with doing all this research. What was that experience like? Well, it was it was fun because the way it was put to me was that when when I was asked to do this, they really didn't have the who's who in mind yet. The idea was that Marvin Lynn were going to do uh, what turned into Crisis on Infinite Earths, and also what turned into the uh, two part history of the DC Universe series, and they wanted someone to do a lot of research for this and that was me because they knew from my letters and from meeting me that I had this great interest in comics history and um, but the way they put it to me was we're hiring you to come in a couple of days a week and read everything in the DC Comics library now why would I ever say no <laughs> so that now it wasn't absolutely everything I didn't have to read like the fox and the crow but I did every so often steal a glimpse of some of like the Shel- Sheldon Mayer funny animal comics. So I was basically reading the stuff that ties in that is actually part of the DC universe. But I was reading, you know, I was reading of everything from the mid 30s up until the early 80s, and it turned out that I ended up having to spend like three days a week to get it all done within a year. Now, how much of this? research Marvin Lynn actually used, I don't really know. But it certainly was a big help when they decided to start the Who's Who in the DC Universe series, because I ended up writing a lot of the articles for that. And I also uh, once went to a uh, role-playing game conference that I was sent, Marvel sent me to a role-playing game conference in the 80s, and I was amazed to discover that copies of my notes on the DC, on all the books in the DC library, had found their way to the uh, company that was doing the DC role-playing game, so they were using them for research. Oh, wow. Now, you know, but it's, you know, not that I got paid anything extra for that. Similarly, Marvel used to have a restaurant called Marvel Mania uh, out in California, and apparently they had like uh, reproductions of Marvel Universe entries, some of which I wrote 
in the restaurant, but I didn't see any money from that. That's the way work. <laughs> that's the way work for hire happens. But you know, your work can end up being used in amazing places. I mean, obviously, you must have a pretty amazing memory as well. I mean, obviously, you're probably taking a crazy amount of notes, but like, how much of that experience do you still remember? All those like comics. I mean, that's a huge library to kind of put into your brain. Well, what I was saying was that I was reading all these all these uh, DC books in the early '80s, and then I was going over to, then I was going over to Marvel and doing all this research for the Marvel Universe Handbook. But uh, you know, a lot of it now is just a lot of the DC st- stuff is a blur. You can't really expect me decades later to remember all those different stories. But it's like, uh, and uh, nowadays I'm a, an alumnus of Columbia University, so I get to use their library for free. And over the last several years, Karen Green, the li- who's the medieval librarian there, built an enormous collection of novels. So sometimes I will. So I'm there every week reading, reading comics, and sometimes I'll like look at one of the DC archives volumes of Golden Age material, and usually I don't remember these stories at all. Although I'm reading, I know I must have read them way back when, <laughs> but I think I do basically have a really good memory for this stuff. I mean, sometimes I'm talking to somebody, somebody, and they'll ask me a question about some Marvel DC character, and I'll come up with the answer, and I surprise myself that I knew it. So it's just kind of so, stored in there somewhere. It's stored. In, it's stored in there some, somewhere. If I don't know, if I don't know, and I know where to find it. Now, when uh, when you were brought over to Marvel, who was it who brought you over to do research over there? That was Mark Grunwald. And obviously, that had a huge impact on your life. I had been uh, because he did have a huge impact on my life because he brought me over to Marvel, and uh, Mark, uh, not so much. Well, he was sort of a historian. T- too, because he he did this, um, he worked on this um, special fan. Uh, DC was doing a fan magazine once called Basically World DC Cogs, and I think Mark put together the Justice League issue. He was a big fan of Justice League. That's just before he went to Marvel. And uh, but Mark and I thought alike, and we both wanted to organize to keep track of Marvel history, to organize it. And you know, after I. Had, First met Chris Claremont. I started to meet more and more people at both Marvel and DC. So Mark had gotten to know me, and he invited me to work on a fan magazine that he did called Omniverse, which is about um, things like parallel universes and time travel and the question of, quote, reality, unquote, in in comic book stories. And as I just commented on Facebook the other day, it's, it's, it's amazing to me, you know, long after Mark passed away, that now scientists are taking the idea of parallel universes seriously. And I wish he had lived to see this. But anyway, so I was already working on Omniverse, and then when the Marvel Universe Handbook started, he brought me aboard, uh, I think with the second issue. And at first I was just doing the uh, research for the appendices, but pretty soon I started writing articles fought as many as Mark eventually and for the second version of the handbook more than Mark and also when um, when Louise Simonson uh, left staff she had been the X-Men ed- the editor of the X-Men books um, and Anna Senti, her assistant, took over Mark and Ralph Markio, another editor there, recommended to Anne that she hire me as, assist- as her new assistant because I knew so much about the X-Men 
and Chris liked the idea, and so I was assistant editor at Marvel for a while. So that, um, and also Mark is the one who recommended me to Abrams to write Marvel, the Marvel Universe book in the mid '90s, and that started my started the that was the first of the many you know, books outside the comics industry that I was writing that I wrote about comics. So yeah, Mark had a great deal of influence on my life, and I miss him a great deal. As do most people who were at Marvel back then. What was it like working in the Marvel offices in the 80s? Uh, um, it was much less corporate than DC and much less corporate than Marvel or DC are now. Now um, they were uh, much more welcoming to, you know, freelancers would hang out there all the time. Now you now at either company you basically have to make an appointment in order, if you're a freelancer in order to get into the office to see somebody. And the offices were, whereas DC and Marvel now they're very, they're very quiet and orderly offices. It's you know you could be going there, and if it wasn't for the comic book posters, you'd think you might be in an ad office. Say back then, however, um, there's like, and Mark was particularly big on this. People would like people would decorate their offices. That Mark had very various themes for his office. For example, at one point he decorated it as his office as a dungeon. <laughs> Um, and so, and there were um, there were lots of parties in the, in the office. People dressed very casually. It was a fun fun place on Fridays in the summer. Um, people uh, this place with Marvel would close early, and a whole bunch of people would go off to Ralph Macchio's house in New Jersey because he had a swimming pool. Uh, the rest of the year, when it wasn't summer, on Friday nights, people from uh, DC and Marvel would get together. On Friday evenings, we would basically like take over one floor of a restaurant somewhere in New York, and it was it was a whole lot of fun. The comics community was very strong back then, and it seemed to me like there was there was a party like every month that I was going to being held in the comics community. And now it's very different. It's much more corporate, I think, because the the corporate owners of Marvel and DC have taken a stronger hand, and of course, of course, DC is now out Burbank. And um, and also the freelance, what used to be the very strong New York comics community, a lot of these people have have uh, left New York for various parts of the country. A lot of the new people don't live in New York, uh, but they work in other states. So it's not what it used to be. Though it was fun going, getting to go to the Marvel preview screening of Ant Man last week. What did you think of Ant Man? Ant-Man is a wonderful movie. It is a whole lot of fun. I highly recommend it. I don't think it is. I don't think it is a great superhero movie in the sense that I think Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight is someday going to be recognized as the greatest movie that came out that the year that it was made. And I think that Joss Whedon's Avengers movies are probably the greatest of the Marvel movies. But Ant-Man is really, really well made. It's a whole lot of fun. It was completely continually surprised me I highly recommend it and it shows once again that Marvel can take Marvel Studios can take one of their lesser known properties and in the case of Ant-Man a property that many people had regarded as sort of a joke mm-hmm. and turn it into something really good and really successful I agree no it was it was a lot of fun and I, I had a lot of hope for it but yeah I heard a lot of people saying you know why are they even bothering with Ant-Man I'm like well he's a founding Avenger <laughs> Like he's a good character. Well, but uh, but of course the founding Avenger one is sort of the mentor in the That's movie. That's true. Though. Yes, it's Scott Lang who Mar- Marvel actually killed off at one point. 
who uh, and then brought back, of course, as Marvel and DC tend to do. Absolutely, they brought him back um, at the same time they killed his daughter, and eventually she came back too. Yeah, yeah, it's like they're changing their minds, but it's like, a, but it's like, um, but even so, it's not the fact. This isn't the Ant Man who was the founding of Benjamin. Even so, I mean, there is a what the, what Marvel Studios did was recognize that there's a really good concept there, and and they made the most of it more than as often been made of the character in, in uh, the comics themselves. I mean, keep in mind that when Stan and Jack and Larry Lieber created Ant-Man, they only kept him as Ant-Man for a short time, and they pretty much, they probably, they themselves seem to have got, Stan and Jack themselves seem to have thought, well, this is sort of a limited concept, and that's when they turned him into Giant Man. I was surprised that we didn't see any kind of inkling of him going giant in the movie. Um... Well, I think, I don't know, trying to read their minds, I'd say that um, if you establish that he can become a giant, then where does he waste all his time in the fight scenes being tiny when he could turn to giant size and crush these people easily who are trying to attack him? So it's like, uh, I think they wanted to get the most out of what they can do with him in tiny size in this movie. However, you know, notice that they get some of the, a bit of a spoil alert here, folks, <laughs> uh, for the next minute or so. But in the movie, they do this thing. They show the pin, him using the pin particles to turn an ant giant size. True, and Thomas the and Tank a toy Engine. Train, and a toy train giant size. So they seem to be laying, they might be laying the groundwork for Giant Man. Who knows? That's a good point. They did, they did at least show that he can grow things with the pin particles. So, And that was a great sequence when we saw the giant Thomas the Tank Engine go through the building. I guess the the biggest thing you know, that struck they oh. clearly laid groundwork for the wasp. Oh, absolutely! I even liked that um, they had the character say, "You know, finally." It felt like a nice meta comment. Yeah. Because where is our wasp? Uh, one thing I did want to mention about the Ant Man movie, and you kind of underscored it as well, is that it's a fun movie, and I do like that the Marvel movies have had a sense of humor for the most part. Like there's a lightness they to do. them. I mean, they can get very. They can get very serious, but they find the balance. I once heard Stan himself uh, at a, at having a, with the editors at Marvel and talking about the importance of this balance, that no matter how, how bad things get for Spider-Man, he nevertheless has moments of triumph and joy. And this is something that Marvel Studios has picked up on and that I wonder if DC realizes because I look at the pre-trailers for Batman Absolutely. Um, I want to go back again. Um, when so you mentioned that it was Garun, uh, Mark that was a big part of you writing your first book about Marvel. Is that correct? He recommended me to Yes. Now, what was that like putting together that book? And I, I say that, and as I mentioned before we started the podcast, 
Um, it was a huge, important book that I read when I was younger. I mean, I was probably, this is dating myself but as much younger, but I was about 12 years old when this came out. And obviously there wasn't as easy access to internet articles about, you know, combo characters and the history of them. So this was a huge part of forming my understanding of the characters. So what was it like kind of putting together that book? Oh, it was fun. It took a long time. There were times when I was actually having to finish chapters at a, on a computer at the Abrams offices because we had to get that chapter in for a certain deadline. Um, Marvel wasn't uh, having art for, for licensed books back then, so most of the art that's in Marvel Universe actually produced in my own collection. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. But it was also, it was also fun being able to choose the artwork. So um, the book, I'm very happy with the book. It was, uh, I put, I, um, I did not choose the people who did the, uh, the new illustrations, like there's this double-page spread art that introduces each chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that Marvel together figured. So I didn't like call up John Romita Sr. and ask him to do the cover of the book. But any, any artwork that's from an old comic book is, that's reproduced in the book is from my collection. You know, now that you and mention I, it... And, uh, it was fun. It was it was fun. It was enjoyable, and like I would love, I would love it if I gave it to Disney or whoever trolls the uh, license license books like this nowadays brought me back to do an updated version. It's interesting now that you mentioned about the artwork. A lot of it being scanned from your own collection because having now looking at the book, I can kind of see that because there's some panels which are a lot cleaner and some that look a little bit more weathered. And uh, I yeah. always thought it added a lot of um, character to the book. And again, always kind of made me want to seek out these comics and read them based on the little snippets that you included in the book. So it's interesting to find out where a lot of the artwork came from. Well, one of the things that's been sort of an interesting surprise to me over the years is that when I go to comic book exhibitions in the museum, and, and you're used to seeing original art there, but they, a lot of them also exhibit the original editions of the comics that they were printed in. That the artwork was printed in, and so the old comics have become museum pieces in the 21st century. Hmm. So I think it's absolutely cool you have that you know some of the reproductions in Marvel Universe of artwork are not as clear as others because they're being shot from actual comic books. Now you also you also wrote the Ultimate X Men Guide, I guess, for DK Publishing, correct? Right. Now, what was that process like? Because that came out, I think, around the time of the X-Men movie or leading up to it, am I correct? Yeah. And I worked on a, a few different editions of that back when, I was, back when DK was asking me to do stuff for them. And again, um, it was, again, it was, uh, well, again, it's a question of, that was the interesting challenge about the DK books. Well, again, I'm doing a lot of picking of artwork, though this time not from my own collection. This time, by this point, Mark was able to supply them with art they could reproduce um, easily. But it was, um, it was like in, with the Abrams book, uh, I had uh, I could write at length, whereas with the DK book, they're basically visual encyclopedias, and you have to describe, every picture has to be described in nearly a few lines, and like every double-page spread, say, gets a, like a, might be three paragraphs of introduction, and apart from that, it's just these short captions. So it's a, I used to refer to it as like writing haiku. 
It was like trying to boil all, all the essential information down into just one or two lines. So uh, that was an interesting... Going back to the Marvel Universe book just for a second. Interesting skill. Gotcha. Um, with the Marvel Universe book, one thing I, I don't think I realized at the time, but now I, I know, is I guess, was it always planned as a companion uh, to the uh, Les Daniels book? Uh, I heard of it referred to as a companion. The idea was that it was supposed to be a different kind of book than the Les Daniels book because mine was focused more on the history. Les Daniels book was more like a history of the company and the people who were on staff of the company whereas and, and treating Marvel history from that perspective whereas I was concentrating on characters primarily and so, we, uh, and so it was tracing like the history of Captain America or the history of the Fantastic Four and say Stanley and Jack Kirby would be secondary to the characters themselves. I talk about why, what they did that made those characters great. But basically, I'm focusing on the characters and their history, and then showing how various writers and artists contributed to them. Whereas, less I think is Daniels was doing more of a company history, gotcha. and that's true of his DC book too. I mean, obviously the characters all get mentioned in the Daniels books too, but his primary focus is on the history of the company. Now these days, as you as you mentioned, you you keep a very active Facebook profile. Now I I've actually always thought that you you're sorry you're one of the more interesting people I've ever followed on Facebook because of all the cool stuff you post about you know thing comic book birthdays and people you know that kind of stuff and you just have a lot of interesting information. How do you kind of decide what you're posting about and how you keep that going? Um, it's actually a fun thing. What else I'm going to do that day? I have, I have certain things that I do. Well, today there is a birthday in comics and cartoon art. You know, who's born, who was born on that day? Why are they important? Uh, today, for example, it's the anniversary of the birthday of late Dick Giordano. Um, and this is uh, this is something that interests me. I, you know, at some point I may decide I'm, I'm, I'm weary of doing this. I've been doing it for about three years now. Uh, but not yet. It still interests me now. And sometimes I find out stuff that I did not know about these comics creators. Sometimes I even find out about some comics creator I never even heard of, but who had done work that I, uh, that I liked when I was growing up. Like I recently found out the name of the uh, Luke Cameron, the artist who drew the Classics Illustrated adaptation of War of the, of War of the Worlds. And uh, I found that out because I, I was scan I was doing research on birthdays of cartoonists and comics artists and animators. Um, so I think a way of it's also many people uh, who are Facebook friends. I remind them every day that yes, this is what I do. I'm just I'm a comics historian. I know stuff. So and I, I and that may be why I end up, for example getting uh interviewing question people like you absolutely i will however warn people uh, that if you try to friend me on facebook you have to send me a message saying well this you know that you know my work and you want to find out more something like like that because i do not accept facebook invitations from strangers otherwise there are some people who just who just seem to be sending out Facebook and friend invitations, every name that they come across on Facebook, and I don't, I don't, I don't go along with that. No. One thing I really liked that you did recently was your, um, 
I guess your your fantasy Comic Con. If you were there, what you would have done? Yeah. Uh-huh. I I found that actually very interesting. I've never had a chance to go myself. I'm in Toronto, Canada, so I'm not exactly close to San Diego. But I actually found that a very enjoyable kind of uh, way of experiencing inter- interesting things that you know I am not there to obviously go to, but you know interesting things that maybe I wouldn't have checked out. But I found it a very interesting kind of series that you were doing. Well, it's something that I do every year, even though. It's been several years since I've been to San Diego, and it's, San Diego is getting, you know, more and more impossible to get to anywhere. And I think I'm probably never going to go back unless it publicizes and it pays for it all. But it's, um, but every year I go through the San Diego con schedule and try to what would I say if they were actually there. I, and doing on Facebook, this is too Curating my own comic book convention, second version of Comic Con, I, I look through, I look through the internet and find videos of panels that's panels that people taped and put on YouTube, and that I would have been interested in a if I had been to San Diego for the con, and b if I could possibly have gotten into Hall H. <laughs> and it's um, and so I sit up, sit at home watching them, and I think they're interesting, and so I'm pointing them out to other people. You should watch this too. Unfortunately, most people, do, it's the movie and TV panels that get videotaped, not the comics panels. However, I have come across a website where this guy who has done audio recordings of a lot of comics-oriented panels in San Diego, so probably in the near future, I'll start posting a few of those as well. Before- I mean, really, I, I realized this year that, you know, by not if I went to San Diego, I still would not be able to get into a, a lot of the panels I would like to see if they were not comic book panels. And uh, and it's much simpler to sit at home and watch them for free on YouTube. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the only difference is that I, I, can, I understand, you know, I, I understand that there's a, it's nice to be able to say, you were in the same room with these big stars. But having been in Hall H at past visits, I can also tell you that the likelihood is that you're going to be sitting so far away from them that they're just going to look like these tiny dots in the distance, and you're going to end up watching them on big video screens anyway. But what I really meant, but of course, my, one of my problems is that uh, the mainstream media and YouTube act as if uh, Comic Con is all about movies and TV, and they pretty much ignore the, all the, com- the comics and the animation part of the con, which is really the heart of the con. And I would like to, what I really miss from not going to San Diego is I would like to go to the Eyes No Woods. I would like to see, see the Masquerade. I would like to see the, the panels about con, especially those organized by Mark Evanier, who's been doing a great job with this for years, and my friend Danny Fingeroth, who, who moderated some panels there this year, and who I sometimes have worked with as a panelist at uh, uh, I wish that Sandy was doing official live stream videos of co- convention panels yeah, I'm kind of surprised they haven't done that yet panels. I am surprised too it's an, it's an obvious thing and, and look Sandy O'Connor for years now I've been watching videos of the movie panels on YouTube I mean it's like are you, can, can you be unaware of this and, and it's not like you know there's, at this point there's more people uh, in the San Diego Con than it can actually get in I mean, I understand it's not like a game of roulette if you're not trying to apply to get into the San Diego Theater. And so it's like, it's, I've seen recommend that uh, they show them in movie theaters the way that, say, the Metropolitan Opera shows telecasts of its, its productions in movie theaters. The con, con could charge for this sort of thing and make money. 
and it's not going to cut into the number of people who want to be there in person because so many people want to go. I don't know why they don't do this. It's an interesting concept. I'm surprised they haven't thought of it already. You'd think they'd want to make money. But they haven't done anything with it yet. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to, you, obviously you're, you're still keeping abreast of the medium. What are you reading right now that people should be checking out, whether whether it be old stuff, new stuff, superheroes, non-superheroes? What do you recommend? What's the Peter Sanderson recommendation? Um, in terms of current comics, the comics that I read regularly that I subscribe to include um, Injustice, uh, Gods Among Us, which was especially good when uh, Tom. Tom Taylor was writing it and is it continues to be good under its current writer uh, and uh, some of the most dramatic superhero material I've ever seen uh, for different reasons I like the Batman 66 comics which are low fun and captain spirit of the 60s Batman TV show at its best um, I like I've been, I've been I like the Marvel's books uh, like female Thor I, I of course, have been following um, Sandman Ultra um, since I'm, I'm a very enthusiastic, long-time fan of Neil Gaiman's work. And let's see, I'm looking forward to the final issue-slash-volume of Bill Willingham's Tables. I'm looking forward to reading Mark Wade's final issues. Uh, in terms of older comics, well, like I say, I'm at the Columbia University Library uh, at least once a week average, and I read all kinds of stuff there, whether it's uh, reprints of things like ter- old comic strips like Terry the Pirates or Mary Perkins or Polly and her pals or, or whether it's uh, Golden Age stuff I recently was reading a whole lot or it's about the, who saw the progenitor for, forerunner of Swamp Thing and Ant Thing uh, these are stories from the Golden Age uh, the last thing I was reading there was the giant ID new artist edition of Frank Miller and uh, David Mazzucchelli's Daredevil Born Again. Mm. So uh, there's, uh, you know, I never run out of... Karen has something like 5,000 volumes at this point. It's like the DC library all over again. I'm never going to be able to get through this. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been doing it. But yeah, I'm between uh, stuff that I've subscribed to on Comixology and, uh, you know, I'm not on the freebie list of Marvel and DC anymore. I'm not reading everything, but uh, when I find out of something that sounds sting like Alive, Columbia Library, I read the first volume of the new Liz Marvel book, and that lived up to its, repu- its good reputation. Um, but I, I try to keep up with what's going on, uh, you know, without having to spend a fortune on it, so I have some subscriptions to various titles that I find really interesting in comicsology, and otherwise I'm pouring through these books at the Columbia Library. And, you know, there was one friend of mine who uh, said to me a while back, you know, we don't read, you and I, we don't read new comics anymore. And I said, speak for yourself. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, a comics histori- I'm a comics historian and a comic critic. It is my duty and my pleasure to keep up with what's going on in this medium. Well, that's, a great, that's, a, that's a good place to end, I think. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your uh, busy, hot day to uh, talk comics with us. My pleasure. I hope we can do it again sometime. I hope so, too. Have a good day. Thank you.